0: Hi, this is Florence Williams, and today we'll be mapping heartbreak on the 15 Minute Matrix.
1: Welcome to the 15 Minute Matrix. I'm Andrea Nakayama, functional medicine nutritionist, and your host. Be sure to head over to this episode's show notes at 15minutematrix.com if you'd like to see today's topic mapped on a downloadable matrix to remind you of these critical aspects of care. Today on the 15 Minute Matrix, I welcome Florence Williams back to the mic. Florence Williams is a journalist, author, and podcaster. She is a contributing editor at Outside Magazine and a freelance writer for the New York Times, National Geographic, and other publications. She is also the writer and host of two Gracie Award-winning Audible original series, Breasts Unbound and The Three-Day Effect. Florence's first book, Breasts, A Natural and Unnatural History, received the Los Angeles Times Book Prize, and her second book, The Nature Fix, was an Audible bestseller. Her new book is Heartbreak, A Personal and Scientific Journey. Lawrence, welcome back to the 15-Minute Matrix and congratulations on the new
0: book. Thank you so much, Andrea. It is great to be here with you. So you know what, Florence,
1: I don't usually start the podcast by discussing personal stories, but I was thinking if you don't mind that some of the why behind your pursuit of studying heartbreak would help to ground us in this conversation and why you as a journalist decided to study the science of heartbreak.
0: Yes. You know, the subtitle of the book is A Personal and Scientific Journey. (laughs) And so (laughs) the personal is very much in the book. And it does drive my curiosity to try to work my way through heartbreak and to tell the story of the science behind what's happening to our brains and our bodies. And so like a lot of my journalism, it it was really motivated by my personal story. And what happened to me for this book, unfortunately, is that my 25-year marriage ended not by my choice. And I had been with my husband for actually 32 years since I was 18 years old, since literally my first day of college. And so when it ended, it really was so disorienting and destabilizing and frightening. And I had to reexamine everything I thought I knew about myself and my identity and the way that I moved through the world.
1: Yeah. And, you know, I'll just confess that we know each other personally. So I know parts of your story, not all of your story. We certainly don't talk often enough, but knowing this and knowing how it impacted your health and how you take us all the way into the ways that heartbreak impacts the cells is really a fascinating conversation. Can you bring us into things at that cellular level? Is it loss? Is it grief? Is heartbreak distinct from those emotions?
0: Yeah, it's a complicated answer to that question. What happened to me was that in the month sort of following the breakup, I developed type one diabetes, which is an autoimmune disease. I also just felt really off and weird. The way I describe it in the book is that I felt like I had been plugged into a faulty electrical socket. And later I learned a lot about what this state is, which is basically a fear state. It's where you feel alone in the world. And as human animals, you know, we're not Supposed to be alone. And when we're alone, we don't feel safe. And that's just from our deeply, you know, evolved past, when to be alone once upon a time meant that you probably would be pounced upon by a predator. And today, our brains still process that kind of social pain, you know, in similar ways. There's this kind of hypervigilance, you know, similar in many ways to an emotional trauma response. And that is, in fact, I think the way that I eventually somewhat reluctantly at first came to think of heartbreak, that it is a kind of trauma and that your body really carries that trauma and it carries it for a while. So what I did eventually was I found this amazing scientist at UCLA. His name is Stephen Cole and he's really made his sort of professional career by studying the RNA biomarkers of people who identify as lonely. These people we know have a greater risk for a number of diseases, and they die earlier. And among his many questions were, you know, why? Why is that happening? What's actually going on on a cellular level? What's happening in their immune systems? What's happening literally to their white blood cells, their leukocytes? And so he said, why don't you come to my lab? And we'll take a sample of your blood. And then, you know, a few months from now, we'll take another sample. And a few months after that, we'll take another sample. The idea being that hopefully you will move through this heartbreak, start to feel better, and we'll be able to maybe track that in your blood. It was a pretty cool invitation. And that's what we did. Yeah, that's
1: fascinating. I want to look more at what you learned from that physiological discovery, but I'm curious if you were able to tie some of the, what did you call it? You called it a social pain. Was that social right? Social pain. Social yes. pain. I'm curious how that ties to previous social pain. Like, do we know if people are more resilient to loss or grief or heartbreak if they have experienced more or less in their lives. And you know, I won't dig into your past, Florence, but like I know for myself that when I experience loss or grief of something that I became connected to, it goes right back to the loss of my husband. Like I don't like letting go. I like my relationships to sustain and there's a certain physiological response I go into my fight or flight very easily when something is taken away from me. And I think it's tied to that loss. So I'm wondering if there was any discoveries around our historical relationship to loss and grief and heartbreak that implicate each instance even more. Does yeah, that make sense I, as a it, question? It makes total sense. It <laughs> makes
0: total sense. And I think there are so many pieces that go into sort of what makes a person resilient, you know, in any particular incidents but the psychologist i talked to said that yes you know your past traumas certainly can have an impact on your present traumas especially attachment these kinds of attachment losses and our family of origin stories you know play a huge role in what kind of attachment you know personalities we fit into later in life but what was really encouraging to me is that she also said you know history is not destiny And that just because we may have some traumas left over from childhood doesn't mean that we won't learn how to be resilient and that we won't learn to get over heartbreak. And I found that wildly hopeful. And I just dug in pretty deep with her. And I was like, please tell me, what are the things that can help us be resilient? And what she told me, that conversation was actually, her name is Paula Williams at the University of Utah. That conversation really determined the course of my next couple of years and the course of writing this book. And one of the things she told me that was surprising and new and that you just don't hear, I think, discussed in the context of heartbreak or loneliness is that one of the keys to resilience may be how we are able to experience beauty, Mm. that the experience, the emotion of awe and the cultivation of beauty can actually be somewhat of an antidote for heartbreak.
1: That's really amazing. I think I read a quote just recently about how joy doesn't bring gratitude, but gratitude brings joy. And so if we can stop and experience that beauty where that actually has its own cellular healing potential.
0: Exactly. And what she said was exactly what you're saying, which is that you can cultivate this kind of the sensibility it's not something you have to be born with you can actually learn how to slow down <laughs> and find beauty and sit with that beauty and you know experience the sort of joy and the and the sensory immersion of being somewhere beautiful or of listening to music and how that is so good for our nervous systems and it's really good for our brains and the way our brains process pain so the brains of people who are able to experience and enjoy beauty They've shown this in brain scanners that their brains are sort of more connected. There are more connections traveling back and forth between the sensory inputs, the cognitive inputs, our memories, our hippocampus. And there's something about our ability in that connected brain to tell ourselves a story that's very helpful about the pain we're experiencing, how it may relate to other people's pain. It may help put things in perspective. It may help remind us that many parts of our identity can be found sort of beyond this moment of pain and that we can, in fact, someday emerge from it. So it's that kind of framing, you know, that our brains can help us get into.
1: Yeah, for sure. Before we go any further, I need to ask you, Florence, what is heartbreak and
0: how did it get that name? Ooh, good question. You know, it's so interesting that many different cultures across lots of millennia <laughs> describe the heart as being the seat of emotion maybe because it's one of the few internal organs that we can sort of feel, you know, we have this pulse, we can feel our heart beating. And we know and have known for a long time that people's hearts sometimes stop when they experience something devastating. Now we know that there's science behind a particular type of heartbreak called Takotsubo cardiomyopathy that happens not because in the case of a normal heartbreak, a piece of plaque might become dislodged and block an artery. But in Takatsubo, there's some devastating emotional blow that creates so much adrenaline flooding our systems that it causes our heart to sort of distend and beat differently and sometimes stop for a little while. And about 5% of people experiencing that do die from it. Another 20% will go on to have sort of an increased risk of death, but most people do recover from it.
1: And is that the connection to why we think of something like a loss as heartbreaking?
0: Well, I think, you know, that's part of it, but I think a lot of us just can understand that we might have pain or pressure in our chests when we're feeling grief um, or when we're feeling shock. And that would, of course, extend much longer than just the medical awareness of this particular kind of heart failure.
1: Right. And then the reverberation is what you also were talking about earlier that you began to study how it was impacting your immune system and the cells in your body. Can you speak more into that deep physiological impact of that heartbreak?
0: Yes. I think maybe because I was someone who had been married for so long and with the same person for so long, I actually had never experienced romantic heartbreak before. And I didn't take it all that seriously. You know, it was kind of the landscape of pop songs and sort of (laughs) overwrought poetry. It seemed kind of overdone. And I wasn't necessarily that sympathetic when my friends experienced it because I thought, well, you know, this guy's obviously a loser. Just get over him. (laughs) (laughs) But then when it happened to me, you know, I was like, whoa, I feel this in my body in this really profound way that I hadn't expected. And I think a lot of us tend to think that, that heartbreak is sort of mostly emotional, but it turns out you know, that it is in ourselves and it does live in our immune systems. And that information is really new and really interesting. And so that's the story I wanted to tell in this book.
1: And what was the most fascinating thing that you discovered in that journey?
0: Well, I learned that I had certain genetic markers or genetic expression markers that did change over time in ways that increased the inflammation in my body and actually that decreased my ability to fight viruses. And that is something that the researchers are seeing across the board in people who identify as feeling lonely or as feeling sort of socially threatened. And it was fascinating to me to sort of talk about the evolutionary reasons for that, you Why would our bodies produce more inflammation? And I think nobody really knows for sure, but this, you know, Dr. Cole, who I worked with at UCLA, his theory is that, you know, when we are sort of left alone in the jungle because we've been cast out, you know, of our tribe or whatever, we are more likely to be attacked or we're more likely to be injured by something in the jungle when we're alone. And so our bodies ramp up inflammation in preparation for an attack. And that can be really adaptive. I mean, we need inflammation if we're going to have a bacterial infection or if we're going to suffer some sort of animal bite. (laughs) And so our bodies tick up that inflammation. And at the same time, we don't live in groups at the moment. We're not hanging out with other people close to us. And so we're not as threatened by viruses, which are spread in groups. The irony, though, is that, as you know so well, when our bodies put out a lot of inflammation over you know, extended periods of time, it actually makes us much more vulnerable to many illnesses, many chronic illnesses. And of course, we do need to be able to fight viruses. (laughs) So especially now in a pandemic, but Dr. Cole was sort of, he started out by studying HIV in gay men and found that the ones who had less social support were the ones who progressed to AIDS much more quickly. And that's where it started.
1: Yeah. So from my lens, the way I would put this is that loneliness and therefore heartbreak and grief can be epigenetic factors that turn on some of those variants in our genes that predispose us to further illnesses down the line.
0: Well, that was very well put. <laughs> okay, good. We're on the same page here. We're oh, just looking I at like it. that. I like that heartbreak is an epigenetic factor. That's yes, really good.
1: <laughs> absolutely. So you talked earlier about hope and I can't let you go without learning some of the things that you learned along the way to restore that hope and do some of the healing from heartbreak. I don't know that it ever fully heals. I think it lives with us. It turns certain things on within us. But how do we move forward? One thing you mentioned was beauty and that pause and really taking in the bounty around us. What were some other ways that you found your way through heartbreak?
0: Yes. I have this sort of triangle way of thinking about the journey through heartbreak and the recovery. And the first one is that because your body is so threatened or feels so threatened, you're in this kind of flight or fight that you first need to calm down because no healing is really going to happen either on a cellular level or a psychological level if you feel imminently imperiled. And so the calming down, you know, for me, probably because I had written a book called The Nature Fix (laughs) and knew I was someone who was able to find a lot of peace in natural landscapes. That became really important for me. That was kind of my way through beauty and through awe, which can sort of slow us down. Literally, when we're experiencing something beautiful and awesome, our heart rate actually slows down. For other people, it might be, you know, through music or through looking at some other kind of beauty. So I think the calm piece comes first. And then there's this idea of connection. So that is incredibly important. One thing I learned is that by talking about our grief and our heartbreak, by connecting with others, by feeling like we're not alone through this very isolating experience, that that can also help bring us sort of out of ourselves a little bit, help us feel less threatened physically and literally. And then, of course, for me, there was also this interesting feelings of connection that can come through nature as well and through the experience of awe. So sort of the heart of this book is that I did a 30-day wilderness journey down a river, and I was trying to work on my awe cultivation, (laughs) but I was also really enjoying the feeling of connection to the world around me through that experience.
1: Were you alone, Florence, or did you do that with others?
0: Well, I I did a little bit of everything because (laughs) I I wanted to sort of throw everything at this heartbreak recovery. Uh, Two weeks of that 30 days was with friends and family and two weeks of it was solo. Interesting. So I felt this connection to other people. I felt connection to nature, connection to the world. And then finally, so I've talked about calm, I've talked about connection. And then the sort of third piece is really this notion of purpose and meaning. You know, what do we take from this experience to help move us forward in a way that makes it mean something, makes it worth something, helps other people. And the fascinating thing that Dr. Cole at UCLA discovered is that it wasn't sort of being around other people that improved our genetic markers. It was actually the sense of purpose. So that's the final lesson, and in some ways, you know, a challenging one.
1: Mm, but such an important one. I keep joking that every podcast so far this year really comes back to that why and that purpose. In order to do the work that is a part of healing, and you know, most of us here listening are practitioners. If our clients or patients haven't found their purpose, they're less likely to engage in the things we're recommending. And so, really finding that deeper purpose. And I love Florence. How you tell your story, but also I just want to commend you for telling your story because that's also how we connect. Even though your story is very personal to you, I'm sure every single person listening can relate to loss and grief and heartbreak. And by you sharing your truth, you bring us into our own truths. So kudos for doing that. And I can't wait. To not just get my hands on the book, but also the audiobook with some of these people that you're talking about speaking about their work as well. Is that right?
0: Yes, thanks so much, Andrea. We made a very kind of original audiobook, which is a little bit of a of an audiobook podcast hybrid, in that I actually bring in a lot of voices experts I talked to from therapists, from friends, from scientists who I taped, you know, as I did the reporting for this book sort of in real time, (laughs) not only talking about my own heartbreak, but talking about research. And so we incorporate a lot of sound, a lot of interviews, and a lot of even my audio journals, my therapy sessions, (laughs) it's all in there.
1: Amazing. Well, I can't wait to dive in. And Florence, it's always such a joy to speak with you and to engage with your work. Thank you you so much for joining us today
0: thank you andrea it's been a pleasure
1: the 15 minute matrix is hosted and produced by me andrea nakayama and the functional nutrition alliance the podcast is edited and mixed by brian paik of pacific audio and special thanks to natalie merrill alia hale Pamela Geismar, and Rowan Bradley for their support in making the 15-Minute Matrix possible. You can find episodes on all kinds of topics with more incredible guests at our podcast website, 15minutematrix.com, or wherever you listen to podcasts. If you'd like to see the completed Functional Nutrition Matrix that accompanies today's or any episode, be sure to head over to the podcast website. Again, that's 15minutematrix.com. We love when you share our episodes with your friends and colleagues, leave a review, and rate the show. That helps us to grow our collective message that functional nutrition is the future of healthcare. Also, be sure to follow us on Instagram at Functional Nutrition Alliance, and you can follow me at Andrea Nakayama. And if you or someone you know is interested in becoming a functional nutrition counselor, head over to fxnutrition.com to learn more about our full body systems program. Full Body Systems is our 10-month immersion course where you'll learn the systems-based approach to addressing the root causes of your client's issues through client education, diet, and lifestyle modification. Again, you can always learn more at fxnutrition.com.